This is the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast interview with Brandy Waller-Pace and Lorelai Batislang. We, we talk about resources and the idea of, of like resources um, first and relationships second, I think is something that we're really struggling with. So um, I was looking at a post today, it was about hip hop culture and teaching hip hop and um, knowing culture bears and talking to people from, from the South Bronx and just all this, you know, like this rich information. And down the, the post, a teacher says, well, do you know if there were just like a graduate course I could take in hip hop? And I was like, you just got all this, this amazing information about actually connecting with the humans who know about and are doing this living tradition. And, but the default was like, what is the formal um, academic setting that is prescribed in which I can engage in this thing with a certain level of, I guess, protection and safety. And, and honestly, the comfort of it being structured in a way that's seen as more valid. And so, you know, people put those like, you know, what's this book? I mean, you could also talk to the, person that <laughs> that talks about their their lived experience all the time and talk to more more and more people sure we, we see the value in reading and understanding and you you can't discredit just giving language to be able to share to talk and learn about things it's incredibly valuable and you can learn so much through through reading but just the idea that um you have to get something something structured to pick through first versus finding people to connect to to learn a thing is is something we keep coming up against. You're listening to the Music Therapy Chronicles, a podcast about music therapy from a variety of perspectives. Our ambition is to inspire and connect listeners through meaningful conversations, just like a music therapy conference you can listen to anywhere. My name is Trisha Kayati, and I am a board-certified music therapist from the New England region. If you like what you hear, join our group on Facebook and share your own insights and thoughts about the episodes. You can also connect with us on social media and online at Music Therapy Chronicles. Welcome back to the Music Therapy Chronicles podcast. In today's episode with Brandy and Lorelai, we dive headfirst into their nonprofit organization decolonizing the music room. This is probably a resource you've seen thrown around in some different music therapy groups. I know I have. um, And so I've been eagerly awaiting this conversation to be able to ask them all my questions myself. And I feel like I could have talked to these ladies for for many more hours. They were so open to the conversation and to sharing uh, and to learning um, and doing it together, doing it together as professionals. So I hope you learn a lot from this episode. Um, I hope you also enjoy having a music education perspective on the show. I know I really liked that. I think they probably felt a little on the spot when I asked them about uh, what they thought music therapy was. That's at the end of the episode, so stay tuned for that. But I I think it's so valuable for us also to understand what other people think we're doing, Uh, you know, because on the show, it's like, oh, that's a great way to do an elevator speech. And that's a great way to do an elevator speech. That's how I always feel. But to actually hear a non-music therapist perspective 
on what it is we're doing is helpful for us to better frame uh, and adapt our elevator speeches. So definitely check out all of the links in the show notes and do your own digging uh, into colonizing the music room and the resources mentioned so that we can all grow together. We can have a conversation together. Um, and as music professionals in general, we can do better like we're all being called to right now uh, at an alarming rate because it's time. It's beyond time. If you're enjoying the podcast, please let us know by leaving a review on iTunes and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that it is downloaded to your player automatically each week. You can also find us on social media at Music Therapy Chronicles and you can join our group on Facebook. Uh, that would be a great place to share if you've, if you've looked at any of the resources that are mentioned, uh, what you thought, a conversation you want to have, or if you just have a favorite and you want to share it, please do that. You can also support the podcast by becoming a patron on patreon.com. That link is always in the show notes. All right, let's get into this episode with Brandy and Lorelai. Brandy and Lorelai, welcome to the Music Therapy Chronicles. Thanks Hello. so much for having us. I'm excited for this conversation um, for many reasons, but one of them is that you are both music educators, uh, and I do not have a ton of music educators on the show, I'm trying to branch out more. So thank you for making the time to educate us music therapists. Um, <laughs> can we start off by, will you introduce yourselves with saying your name so that the listeners can identify who is who? Yeah, I'm I'm Brandy Waller Pace. And I'm Lorelai Batiste Long. Awesome. And what else do you want to tell us about yourselves? I am founder and executive director of Decolonizing the Music Room, which is a nonprofit that has a mission of highlighting black, brown, indigenous, and Asian voices in music education in ways that they haven't been centered and highlighted. Um, I recently stepped down from a 10-year teaching career to go back to school and get a PhD in music education. And I am also an active musician, primarily in jazz and old-time music. Cool. Um, and I'm Lorelai. I am the deputy director of the Colonizing the Music Room. Uh, I a, taught elementary music for 14 years, and then I've been back at grad school at the University of Texas at Austin for the last five years, working on my PhD in music and human learning. Um, and I do clinics around the, the country, um, lots of ukulele sessions and workshops and such. Cool. You guys are both busy then. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. That back to school life. What's it like uh, doing online learning or was that kind of your plan to begin with? Were your programs already online? My program is very much in person and stop what you're doing. And that's the only thing that you can do. Mm. <laughs> so um, the last last semester was interesting um, making the switch over. Thankfully, since I am in my fifth year, I'm kind of I'm done with coursework. So it's mostly my own reading, researching, and writing. Mm. Um, but I do have to figure out how to teach my own classes online. So that's what I've been working on the past month and a half, trying to figure out how to make that transition meaningful and uh, yeah. useful. Yeah. It's a challenge. And I'm right? like, we, yeah, we all are doing that, though, you know? All teachers are. So. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm in a similar boat to Lorelai in that I have to figure out how to teach online, except she's taught in general before what, what I am now learning to teach at the same time as learning how to deal with it online. But, you know, we have what? We have three weeks now. <laughs> you, you know, though, but like, since you don't have all that, like, prior experience with how it was in the classroom, maybe it'll be easy for you because then you don't have that, like, fighting mm -hmm. for figuring out how to make it the same as what it was. You know, you just have a blank slate. It could be whatever it is. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll just say that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, I agree, because you're not, like, trying to think outside of this box you've created. Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. complete creative landscape for you to work with. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> so um, I always ask the guests how they got into music therapy, but you guys are not music therapists. So how did you decide to become music educators? Hmm. <laughs> so... Brady has an interesting story, right? <laughs> <laughs> It depends on the part of the story, I guess. <laughs> I um, just, you know, the straight up music ed part, my um, undergrad and master's are in jazz studies. So I did some teaching as a graduate assistant, but never intended to go into teaching general music and, um, and music ed, you know, at the level of involvement I have now. I moved down to Texas. My husband's family's from here, so... There was a mixture of um, being in D.C. I went to college at Howard and, it, you know, it's incredibly expensive mm -hmm. <laughs> to live in D.C. So I moved back to Texas and it became a matter of practicality. Part of it was looking for employment and part of it was, you know, what do I actually enjoy and have some experience in and feel like I can I can grow in and have a future in. And I had done the graduate teaching and worked privately with children. And it was a position I found myself in fairly often to have some sort of teaching of what I was doing. So it just seemed like a like a natural fit. And thank goodness, the timing, the stars aligned, everything came together at the right time for me to enter music at. Yeah. And, and one for me, it was, um, I knew when I was a sophomore in high school that I wanted to be um, a music teacher, but I had very much decided I was going to be a band director. Like mm -hmm. I was going to be a high school band director and I was going to win state marching contests because that's just how we think in Texas. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so but then I had some ideas when I got to college and some interesting experiences that really shaped and changed the way I thought about what it meant to teach and what it meant to learn how to, you know, learn music and the relationships you have with your students when you're doing that. Um, and so it just shifted my, my perspective. And then I did my first um, observation kind of mini teach, you know, you go out and, and we're starting to, to get to your um, music ed classes. And I taught a recorder lesson to some fourth graders and I just loved it. Like I just felt that was home, like that the students were laughing at my jokes and I could be silly <laughs> and I didn't have to like, you know, I could just have fun with them and we were interacting and it was just a very positive experience that made me realize like, yeah, I, I'm a, I'm an elementary music teacher is what, um, what I decided. So, and I just haven't looked back since. So. Yeah. Good for you. Oh, I love that. I love that those are, yeah. um, I'm going to quote untraditional paths, but there's no traditional <laughs> path, right? Um, thank you. Thank you for sharing those. So let's dive into decolonizing the music room. Uh, what originally sparked that idea? Yeah, um, it, it was kind of a long process and, and ended with actually things happening very quickly. So, you know, I started teaching and my teaching experience has been in environments that are predominantly um, black 
and Hispanic, Latinx, Latino, Chicano, and other minoritized students. So as I developed my music ed knowledge, I was also able to take a look at elements within my district, how they affected different children. And what was a really big turning point was when my oldest child started school. And his school was maybe a mile and a half from where I taught. Um, the, the racial demographics were whiter. Um, the school was more affluent, though it was Title I, and it was like a special choice program, public option. And just looking, even the state of the buildings, just a mile and a half away, the disparity was really, really high. The difference in the way the instruction went, the class sizes, the things that were paid attention to by the district were so different. It made me very, very angry. Mm. So I started to get involved in uh, my district advisory committee first. I got involved in the district's racial equity committee, and I began to do racial equity work and read more about different theories that essentially explained experiences I was accustomed to. And at the same time, I was learning more about African-American roles in early American music and just everything mixing all together while I was increasing just like general music ed pedagogical knowledge. Um, I started to have more conversations with music educators and they were super problematic. They were, um, they were, um, it, it just made it very clear that there's a certain viewpoint that dominates in music ed and it's been like that and people accepted it for what it was and would fight tooth and nail to maintain that even at the expense of you know me as a black woman saying this is really harmful this is personally harmful and here's the reason in my own culture and history so it kind of reached it, it reached its peak and i had um one particular interaction that was um it was really shocking and it was really unfortunate and it just kind of taught me a lot about how I needed to consider who were the experts and who were the people that we considered sources of knowledge in music ed. And at the same time, I had a couple of people who were saying, I noticed you're writing about this. I noticed you're posting things you've been looking up. So is there a place that you're going to collect this information? And I hadn't really thought about it until that happened. And a friend I talked through it with was like, you know, maybe it's time to create something formal. And so reached out to Lorelai, reached out to a couple of other people with the plans I was making and, and they were on board. And then we got the site together and launched. And um, that was June last year. Then oh, we wow. became officially a nonprofit January. We, we operated throughout that time, but official nonprofit federal status in January. And, you know, things were going fairly quickly. And then of course, um, George Floyd was murdered, the Black Lives Matter movement um, had a, a level of resurgence and a level of attention that, you know, was was different than a lot of people had experienced before. And things, you know, fairly exploded after that point. Yeah. So that's, um, it's always, it's never surprising to me, but it's always interesting about how in our lives we do things, we, we create things, we involve ourselves with things. And we don't realize how impactful that will be until down the road. And it's like, wow, I've been culminating all of this that uh, has set me up for, like you said, um, Black Lives Matter being more prevalently recognized right now. And um, yeah, you, and it's awesome that we, we as uh, I'm not going to say an educator, but as professionals who are looking for these resources, you've been collecting them for a year for us. So thank you so much for the work you're doing. Um, I'm sorry that yeah, that <laughs> unfolded the way it was to lead you to do this. But 
um, it's so important. It's, it's so important. And yeah. Um, let's see. So it's fairly new decolonizing the music room, right? Yeah, yeah, the the organization is is fairly new. It's really interesting because things have moved so quickly. I look back and and have to kind of gauge. I found an old Facebook post where someone in March was like, "Where do you want your whatever to be in a year?" And I had written mm-hmm. these goals. <laughs> 4 months later, I was like, "Oh, we've done that now because everything went so fast." Yeah. Um but even looking further back, I'm realizing that it feels new, but there's so much stuff I hadn't I hadn't paid attention to too earlier and how I was speaking and how I approach things. So um, I've learned a ton and I feel like a new person like every month. But at the same time, I look back and go, I've always been like this. I've always talked like this. It's just that I've been able to increase my knowledge and engage with more people and have a better understanding to shape what I'm trying to do with with the approach I have. Yeah, my path with uh, decolonizing the music room is, is interesting because it feels like you know, I have been able to, once my path has crossed or, or crossed with Brandy, um, then that was something completely different. But it's like just um, just being who I am and how I look and placing that in the context of what spaces I usually inhabit, which are predominantly white spaces. Mm. I am by default just kind of that other voice. And uh, even though I don't, you know, intentionally mean to be, I come with that perspective. And so I've always been thinking that way or have been asked to represent that. Um, and so working with the colonizing in the music room has just really focused like the intentionality that I approach that now, I think. Yeah. I can see that with others. It seems like there are so many people who who have been thinking about things in a similar way, you know, not exact. Um, but I think a specific organization that's focused in on music ed is is a newer thing that people aren't accustomed to. And that's black, brown, indigenous, and Asian led is not something they're accustomed to. Mm. And so I'm talking to a lot of people who are saying, you know, like now it feels like a space where I can um, be very, very forthright with with that stuff. And we all still have other things that we do because this isn't the totality of our professionalism or our existence or anything, but these kind of things that maybe we were thinking and maybe sitting in a sea of, of white peers going, oh, what's gonna happen if I say that? Now we just all say that together, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Strength in numbers. <laughs> so since you've achieved your goals already, what is, um, I, I'm not going to put a time limit on but it, but like a very broad <laughs> aspiration, like what do you want to see decolonizing the music room accomplish, create, um, change? Where, where are your big dreams at for this? Yeah, um, I think getting some things done more quickly have made made room has made room for expansion Mm -hmm. of it's like the goals are necessarily different it's just that i can imagine a bigger scope so an example might be like you know presenting to someone for an hour versus having an entire program where we are able to work with people throughout their entire school year just just increasing the scale um lorelei and i've actually talked about this a lot um we had a certain viewpoint going in and I think maybe the organization had more discussions about working within structures that were there by necessity. It's still a necessity for structures that are going to be there, but we are less, we are less concerned with maintaining a structure and figuring out how to work within it than we are with how do we 
dismantle the the structure completely mm. and i think we're we're way more overt about acknowledging that the idea of decolonization it's not an endpoint anyway but certain things can't be decolonized they just they just aren't they you know the at the root of them is some you know there's a colonial project or mindset or or framework and so we can talk about things that you can do to i guess essentially mitigate harm Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's that's the right way to put it, but you know, the real answer is how do we eventually dismantle and restructure things? Yeah. So I guess um, I'll put you on the spot to see if you have a practical tool. So if if we, there are music therapy professors listening right now, say, uh, and there's a lot of discussion in our profession about how our training is, no surprise, very westernized. Uh, On one of my first episodes of the podcast, the guest was saying he was very proficient in West African drumming and took the audition for his music therapy training. And the people in the audition room were like, that's great, but can you play XYZ on the piano? Which was, you know, Mm -hmm. you are my sunshine or or Mm -hmm. something very Western on the guitar, uh, where to them, the West African drumming was just like, oh, like a next extra add on that he just had that musical skill. So if I am a professor listening to this, what are some of your like absolutely imperative that I do to improve my music therapy teaching to improve the program what should I look at uh, what should I keep in mind well um and this is again coming from a music educator who doesn't have very much background in what exactly entails the the training that goes into becoming a music therapist yeah but if I'm I'm not mistaken is it something you also have a lot of, of training in like behavior shaping and and figuring out how to um create some sort of program for individualized people so that they can uh, accomplish a goal of some sort, right? Yeah. So I think I think the thing is to think about just that and where are the perspectives coming from that? Like, why is that a goal? And is mm. that goal necessarily responsive to that student and that student's culture and that student's understanding of their being, I think? Mm. I mean, it's just like a lot of it, I think, has to deal with a, a little, like a philosophical approach to things, you know, as opposed to prescription which in itself is westernized like yeah. this and this and this you know it's like a complete like why do this yes how do this you know i don't know yeah i um i completely agree and i think one thing i always ask if anything is a particular standard or structure you need to be able to answer the question about why it's a standard or structure where that comes from the entire history of it. So, you know, from that that behavioral standpoint, what has structured um, the way that ideas about behavior even are even examined? Mm-hmm. And so, like, we can look to um, Ame Cesar um, wrote discourse on colonialism. If I'm remembering the correct title, um, he also worked in mental health and spoke a lot to mental health in in reference to to colonized people um we can look at things you know on on the land that we're on we we had a post not too long ago about um manslow's hierarchy of needs which we we take it that's a standard that is what that is but then you look back and you find out about um blackfoot indigenous knowledge that 
influence that idea, but also flipped it in a way that actually made the needs in a different order than was actually deemed appropriate for that culture. And so I think there's there's a lot of digging back and seeing why um, if, if you're looking at behavior and, and mental health and psychology and all that, there's just so much rooted in colonialism and oppression and um, forced assimilation, genociding. Mm-hmm. There's just so, there's so much there. So in order to make any decisions about what to do next, you have to find out how you got there in the first place and find out who is really being served and who is really being described and by by whose normative standard are we basing any of this off of, you know? Mm. Well said, well said. So the work that you are both doing on top of graduate studies and doing this and teaching and learning how to live and work through a global pandemic, <laughs> there's there's a lot going on. So how do you both or how do you each stay inspired and motivated to keep doing this? Uh, and how do you kind of lean on your support systems to do that? Um, I'll say some of it's just a level of necessity. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a black woman. I don't I can't not do this. Um, because if I don't, what happens to me, what happens to my students, what happens to people who look like me and, and for people who are racially minoritized and are not in my group, our struggles are interconnected. And for white people who perpetuate racist or oppressive practices, that also takes something from their humanity to treat other humans that way. Um, any of us who do that to each other. So part of it is just like an imperative, a necessity. And then um, I guess the inspiration is, of course, other people who are doing the work, people who um, we kind of bounce off off of one another when we grow. And then something I'm trying to be very mindful of, but is super difficult, is keeping a connection to music making hmm. just to feed any of that. There was a, a period of, of busyness, and I looked and was like, I haven't touched one instrument in two weeks, <laughs> which is which is absolutely terrible because the you know the whole core of what we're talking about centers around music making so um music making and then and then beyond that having some level of creation within it is really really key and i feel like keeps me keeps me fueled yeah yeah searching out for those things that rejuvenate you and replenish you i think is important whether that be um you know interactions with other humans um you know the people you love and the people who care about you uh, reading things, you know, reading things that aren't necessarily having to do with what I'm studying or, mm-hmm. or maybe sometimes it is because I need a liar, you know, fire, like light a fire under myself to get going or something. I don't know. I think it just depends like your body. If you're listening to your, to your mind and your body, I think it kind of tells you what you need. Like it'll lead you that way. So, and I just, I mean, I constantly am talking with Brandy and, you know, and it's, we enjoy each other and we enjoy each other's company and, I think that has a lot to do with um, being okay with doing this work consistently. That's made a big difference. Like Mm -hmm. there's just so many people I like, oh my gosh. (laughs) And you know, we, we talk about being careful of having our only connection be through relating Mm -hmm. our experiences of oppression and making sure we push beyond that. Mm -hmm. But man, there's just so many, so many cool people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, and I'm sure they feel the same way about you and especially grateful (laughs) that you're opening this conversation so much. 
I hope so. <laughs> so you, you've named a couple of the resources you have, and I wrote them down, so they will be in the show notes. Uh, but is there, like, are there a couple other resources that you've found over the year that, um, like, this is one or two that you definitely need to check out, and this is why? I think it would have to depend on what the goal is. I think um, right now I have a lot of focus on understanding history Mm. and structures. So if you ask me now, I would, you know, recommend discourse on colonialism, any critical race theory, anything, preferably Gloria Latson Billings, because she she is the one who um, brought it into the educational realm. And so I feel like that's a, a good focus, too. Things that just talk about plain old history, stamp from the beginning, Ibram X. Kendi, the color of law, and of course the list isn't exhaustive at all, but things like that, even, um, what is the book? Oh man, I'll, I'll have to remember. I'm trying to, to, to not like have to reach up. There we go, stuff like Zora Neale Hurston's Barracoon, where it's, you know, complete, um, account of her speaking with one of the last um in enslaved people to come over on the the last slave ship that was snuck illegally onto the land stuff like that um bell hooks anything bell hooks but teaching to transgress Mm -hmm. is really really good um yeah and I, I think it's interesting that a lot of, of the authors that you're naming are, you know, BBIA, Black, Brown, Indigenous, Asian folk. I think that's important to read the folk, read the people. <laughs> and honestly, like my my personal preference that I found is most meaningful for me is um, is women or <laughs> um, women, femmes, non-binary people, queer people who have that intersectionality. There's a there's a framing of how they have to navigate and look through the world that makes the reading so valuable. And I feel like what they write is for everybody, not because they're trying to write for everybody, but it just is, you know? Mm-hmm. Audrey Lord, yes, that was another. Uh, yes. <laughs> oh, she's like, uh, she's life. Oh my gosh. Yes, yeah. I remember, um, oh, the uses of anger. It's it's such a good way you got to tell the quote after. But I remember I remember reading that for the first time and just like crying, just mm-hmm. crying because of um, how much it understood my experience and how much um, permission it gave me that I didn't know I had to actually feel my feelings mm. and deal with them. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like after being told so many times, like you sound angry make sure that you're not coming across angry, you know, like all those kinds of things to, to undercut that. And that quote that Brandy was talking about, that I just love is um, don't invite me to your own annihilation. <laughs> like if you ask me, you know, ask me how I'm, I am or why, you know, like don't invite me to your own annihilation. It's just like, uh. it's like really, really only ask if you really want to yeah, know. If you really want to know because you're putting me in that place. Mm. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> that's something my mom always said to me growing up, which is in a completely different context, but she was like, if you don't want the answer, then don't ask the question. Ask it's like, question. you got it. You got it, Ma. You, yeah. the, you know, you know all. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just love the idea of annihilation, though. I was <laughs> just like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah well, that- it's, it's not even active annihilation. No. It's just, if you want me to state things how they are, 
Uh I'm going to tell you how they actually are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Well, um, that's why we're having this conversation, right? And, and, Mm -hmm. uh, I, I know I already said it, but it's, it's so sad that you had to go through such crap to be like, look, this, like this, people aren't getting it. They aren't getting that this is so westernized and that education Mm -hmm. like doesn't need to be the way it is. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, thank you. Thank you again. It's so normal and so regular, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. well, what do we do, but, but find some way to, to affect change. But at the same time, I, I say often that I try not to fault any black, brown, indigenous, Asian person for the way that they have chosen to survive in the midst of white supremacy. I try to, unless Mm -hmm. they are doing harm, I try to reserve my judgment and just say what I chose to do and say is what I chose to do and say. Yeah. And that that, uh, idea of that is not always, like for me, um, different experience than Brandy. It's I, I'm very much, you know, being in a PhD program, being very, very much rooted in, in schooling, I, I can easily go right back into the ideas of Western, like, this mm-hmm. is how I learn, this is the scientific method, this is rationalization, you know, all that kind of stuff is very, uh, very home to me. So it's, I'm constantly trying to, to check myself. So it's not like, we're all like, just these learned, enlightened people, the work we do all the time is constant and it's within ourselves. Yeah. Constant. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to unlearn a lot of stuff. Unlearn a lot of things. Constantly unlearn. I look, <laughs> I, I look every once in a while, just even at the website and I've had to go back and edit and say, this doesn't actually fit our voice anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And, and we talk openly about it, but there are some things we, we can't have things being fixed in time because there, there's no growth in it. And, you know, you can look back on your behavior and, and just be like, I, I just really had no idea. Hmm. Well, and when you have no idea, you, you like it, it compounds, you have no idea. So you have no idea. So you're making these mistakes unknowingly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think it gets to a point where um, if you can just remind yourself, there's just a big chunk I have no idea about. So I need to be very mindful that mm-hmm. when I'm in a situation, is there a narrative missing? Is there some background? Is there someone whose voice I might not be listening to here? So I can still say what I need to say, but but always make it very clear that there's not an absolute that will last forever based on whatever I say. Yeah, yeah. In our profession, there's a frequent conversation about, like I touched on, our education being very westernized and um, remembering cultural humility if you're going into a home that has a different culture and being aware of that like you said and that's that's a good place to start Um, but sometimes it feels like we just we we talk about it and it's like oh I'm aware that these people have a different culture that they have a different experience than me Uh, but like there's no talk about what we do after that Um, which is such a disservice to everyone like we're not growing as professionals we're not providing our clients and families with uh, an improved service by just remaining humble. We, we need to then learn and grow. So the, the resources you have put together are a great starting place to, to first, you know, they're easier to digest if you first recognize that you don't know something that you need to know. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Is, is there an approach in, in, th- in music therapy where you also build with the person and the family you're working with? Like yeah. Build their, their, okay. Yeah. I would, I would feel like that might 
open some conversations that would would um, next take step. next step. Uh huh. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for um, the listeners to to who have not heard of decolonizing the music room to dive in to look at the resources we've mentioned. Um, and I want to circle back to something kind of unrelated that Brandy, you mentioned, and we talk about all the time as music therapists, and that's using music for ourselves and music, using music as our own self-care and how most of us do not do that. Um, and I yeah. would love a music education perspective on that. So tell me. So <laughs> I'm going to say I don't actually have one. <laughs> <laughs> I was not formally trained in music education until I actually started teaching. So um, a really important part of my PhD program is taking my understanding from being in the field and, and on the ground level and then understanding how other music ed majors are taught because um, I'm very grateful for my undergraduate and graduate degrees. It framed the way I approach my teaching totally different hmm. because I was... I was trained to go make go out and make music and for that to be the emphasis. And I say often that it's a little harder to play play catch up in terms of music making, improvising, um, getting that bravery and that vulnerability around others that music making takes than it is to study approaches and to implement things in that way. Um, the the time and space I have found just isn't as easy once you're out teaching just because of the the type of interactions it takes that you can't you know take a, a book home and and get so yeah my my viewpoint I, I can't not look at it through musician first eyes which I think is helpful for what I can suggest to other educators but I know Lorelai can speak more to having been formally trained in a music education program. Yeah, so much in my perception of it is that we create music or we teach music in the schools for an explicit purpose of performing at either like a band or an orchestra or a choir. So there is that, that's always the goal or that's the, the goal that we get to, right? So mm -hmm. we have this idea that we wanna make lifelong learners, but how we're teaching and what we're teaching doesn't necessarily set our students up for lifelong musician making things like going out and just gigging with your friends getting in a garage and just noodling around and playing like those kinds of, of skills are never um are, i don't want to say never um haven't been traditionally fostered in in education programs so while we might say those things we don't necessarily are, are preparing our students for those things um so it's just kind of a kind of a a disadvantage and kind of sad but i i do feel like there are people who are trying to move that a little bit more but it's just so hard when there's a huge machine that just mm. perpetuates that and and makes that the most valuable thing for students who are coming up through the secondary level and then once you get out into your professional developments there's a lot of we're making music together for the sake of what we're going to get kids to do in the classroom not for the sake of understanding music making necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so it, it further perpetuates that. And we, we've talked too about speaking to that gap and the connection that educators need to have with those who are primarily music makers compared to the type of educators that you would find in the grade school classroom. I have even found I have to be mindful of 
like wearing a music maker hat versus a music educator hat and making sure that I'm not switching gears so much and making it really clear that these things are one and the same and should be one and the same Mm. and just get even educators to feel like they are musicians. So many educators will be like, well, you know, I kind of play this instrument, but all these, all these things I hear them say that make it clear that they don't necessarily consider themselves musicians. They just feel like they're competent on an instrument, but they are teachers when they are music makers. And of course, in the classroom, how are we teaching children to be music makers if we don't truly consider ourselves music makers? Yeah. That made me think of, um, with my very limited knowledge, but it made me think of how, Lorelai, your example of, uh, you know, creating lifelong learners, but are we giving them the skills to continue to learn doing music and the disparity between, again, this westernized uh, view of teaching and culture compared to cultures where music is just life, like music is just part of life and everyone does it all day, every day. Um, and we, we haven't set that up. We haven't fostered that for so many of our, our kids and adults and people who we work with and how that could be a beautiful tool for them to have. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the difference between product and process. You know, yeah. we talk about that a lot, too. But so much of, of the process um, is what we're missing. Like, we're just trying to aim for this perfect product that, again, is, is probably framed within a Western perspective you know so there's all that kind of stuff happening but it's the process like how did you get here all the mistakes you make all the all the interactions you have while you're with other people like those are all you know inherent to the music making process and uh, we don't get to talk about it or experience it as much as we should and I think to it you know we talk about restorative actions and repair and I was reading an article recently that talked about how heavily assimil- assimilationist um, the roots of music ed were at a certain time period mm. um, in terms of they, they spoke more to, to European immigration. But even looking at how we have, I, I say we, you know, the, the whole system has, has essentially like wrung out that element of music just being part of life Mm, yeah because it was and you know I hear people who you know blame popular music and all this stuff (laughs) and I mean you can talk about whatever but Mm -hmm. like in terms of our roles as music educators you know like there's been this very assimilationist structure and there was like specific campaigning to have this pure American sense of what the highest form of music was to learn and a certain performance aesthetic and then pushing everything else out on the periphery of that and, you know, making this line and making this separation and deeply ingraining that. And now it's like, you know, now we have to look at how do we, how do we repair that? And it goes back to reaching out to, to culture bearers and music makers for whom that, that split didn't necessarily happen, or they maintained that, that other side so much that, that we can talk about how to, how to reconnect. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just the outcome of that is, is that you are performing or learning music in a classroom much differently than how you would consume it outside of life. And it's yeah. just, they don't even seem to, to relate anymore. And I think that's just the outcome of it, which is sad, right? We should try to make what we teach in music class reflect more of what our students are experiencing of music outside of music class. 
Yeah, and those other things can be adaptations for practical purposes, but not for replacements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like um, you both have a beautiful vision and you're you're mm -hmm. melding these these clashing narratives right now. You're melding them so well. Um, and the approach you're taking to me seems seems very sustainable. Uh, even though this is, like we said, this is tough. It's it's tough work. It's time consuming, uh, but we need it. We need it so much. So appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, we're um, we'll see. We'll we'll see the <laughs> the effectiveness, and then we'll we'll change if we need to change. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. First, we'll just try to convince people. Let's just start with that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We have to give a certain level of understanding. It's even, you know, like we, we talk about resources and the idea of, of like resources um, first and relationships second, I hmm. think is something that we're really struggling with. So um, I was looking at a post today. It was about hip hop culture and teaching hip hop and um, knowing culture bears and talking to people from, from the South Bronx and just all this you know, like this rich information. And down the, the post, a teacher says, well, do you know if there were just like a graduate course I could take in hip hop? And I was like, you just got all this, this amazing information about actually connecting with the humans who know about and are doing this living tradition. And, but the default was like, what is the formal mm. um, academic setting that is yeah. prescribed in which I can engage in this thing with a certain level of, I guess, protection and safety. And and honestly, the comfort of it being structured in a way that's seen as more valid. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, people put those like, you know, what's this book? I mean, you could also talk to the the person that <laughs> that talks about their their lived experience all the time and talk to more more and more people, sure. We, we see the value in reading and understanding and you you can't discredit just giving language to be able to share to talk and learn about things is incredibly valuable and you can learn so much through through reading but just the idea that um you have to get something something structured to pick through first mm -hmm. versus finding people to connect to to learn a thing is is something we keep coming up against and I am only going to speak for myself at the very beginning. Um, I, I didn't, I hadn't processed it as strongly as that. So, you know, we would, I, I remember talking to Lorelai and just kind of working through a little bit, but especially in the last few months, it's gotten to the point where we're like, oh no, this is definitely something that we can speak about in very, very plain terms. And I feel like our ideas about it have, have formed more than before. So we won't see like a decolonizing the music room course or like graduate discovery program or a book, like nothing formal. <laughs> so you never know, but yeah, I'm totally kidding. But what yeah, what 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 would actually be contained in that might be a little a little different from expected if that's something that comes to be. Yeah. I can imagine a book by us, people would open up and be like, but they didn't give an exact answer. Where, where yeah, are the, yeah. Where are the objectives? Where are the, <laughs> where are the... <laughs> accurate. So accurate. Right, 
It's like, your assignment for today is to go talk to a person in this description. It's like, really? How do I? Yeah. Oh, I yeah. would love that. That's like, that's such a great thing to do. And it speaks to connecting um, yeah. disciplines too. Like I went yeah. to the American Folklore Society's conference last fall and there are things there that I feel like could benefit from a more music ed approach that I've seen and stuff music ed could benefit from and and looking at at them but there was a lot you know just like ethnographic stuff like just talking to people and having accounts of what they're talking about you know mm-hmm. obviously disciplines all have their work to do but just that idea is is just not something that is really talked about in music ed the same way so it's like yeah mush mush all that together go deal with humans mm. <laughs> Would you consider presenting at a music therapy conference? I'll I'll go where the wind takes me. All right. <laughs> I'll make sure there's a lot of wind when things are like back to quote norm new normal. When they're back to new normal and conferences are not online, I I'll get some wind cuz uh I know that there would be a lot of people who would go to that concurrent session. Um, yeah, Loreline, I've been been um picking up a lot of a lot of stuff and engaging with people so hopefully you know yeah we, we could be down for for talking to to whoever we need to talk to that would um help benefit the mission of what we're doing i think awesome yeah. and, and and getting new insight of of music making too and how music functions in different fields and different disciplines i think that's yeah. super interesting to me and i mean this is this the thing that we do it permeates everything about life i mean mm-hmm. You just look at what's going on right now in in, in our society. So there's got to be a way to to talk about it within you know a music therapy lens and how does that um, affect what we do? And I think that's all very interesting that I would love to know more about. Cool. Yeah. Do either of you have anything you'd like to add before we move into the rapid fire questions? Oh, wait, wait, rapid fire question. Oh, let me, let me try it again. These are the questions. These are the questions that I ask every guest at the end of the episode. It's all about you. There's no wrong answers. And I had listened to one of your episodes, but I didn't get all the way to the end. So I didn't know about that. My goodness. So disappointed. You didn't, you didn't study for this exam. These are the objectives. Oh, but for real, is there anything you'd like to add before we go into the the rapid fire? No, I, just thank, I thank you for having me. Yes, yeah. thank you so much. Of course, thank you. Thank you for making the time. Uh, you're both obviously really, really busy. So thanks for <laughs> for time to talk to little old me and uh, answer my questions. And um, I know this will start a conversation. And I'm hoping some of the listeners dive into what you've put together, dive into their own research, and that. Uh, we as professionals in different disciplines can continue to have this conversation together because it's not like there's a music therapy solution, there's a music ed solution, there's an art therapy mm-hmm. solution. That's not how it's right. going to work. So, right. yeah, we all need to, to work together to create uh, understanding and to help each other through it. Yep. Yeah. Right. First question. Are you ready? <laughs> ready. <laughs> Coffee or tea? Coffee. Coffee. <laughs> I like 
I, I want the public to think I'd say tea, but it's coffee. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. We're not here to coffee judge. Before, yeah, coffee before 2 p.m. Yes. <laughs> like I have boundaries, but coffee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Early bird or night owl? Definitely night owl. Is there like some middle bird? I don't know. Like You can make up whatever bird you want. Bird. All the birds. All the birds. <laughs> I'm a daytime bird. <laughs> Perfect. Something you would tell your younger self. Oh, wow. Good try. <laughs> it's going to be different. Yeah. I have, to, I have to keep it light. I'll just tell myself to practice. <laughs> practice more. <laughs> Man, my life would be so much. Room. Yeah, my life would be so much different if I practiced more. <laughs> mm, yeah. Learn bar chords. <laughs> bar Never. No? <laughs> Don't learn bar chords? All right. No. I won't tell myself that. I won't. No. no. You're I just going to use the, the capo? Just capo? Just, it? The capo. just using the capo. <laughs> or some like in, weird inversion thing. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So the next thing I usually ask people is your music therapy elevator speech. So I'm interested to hear, you kind of touched on this, but what do you think music therapy is? And there's, you know, whatever you think, we're not here to judge. Because uh, this helps us understand how we should better inform other people about what we do. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> you gonna go first? You want me to go first? I'll, I'll go. I'll go second. You go second. All right. Let's see how that is. Last, last name alphabetical order. <laughs> okay. Um. So the question is, uh, tell me again the question one more time. What do you think music therapy is? Okay. Um. I think music therapy is a way to um to shape behavior. Um, using music as the conduit is as the the way to get expression out or to to change behavior through some sort of musical means, whether it be like um, singing songs or playing instruments or I don't know. I think that's as far as it goes, as far as my understanding. Because now it's about to ramble. <laughs> that's fine. Music therapists know, ramble too. <laughs> yeah. No, I just know it's different, very different than what music education is though people try sometimes confound the two mm -hmm. in yeah. some ways that could that that's problematic i also know yeah. that <laughs> good job you're doing great <laughs> okay so i won't do as great but <laughs> um yeah just um assisting with with certain um developmental and emotional needs with with music as the conduit and um finding ways to shape however However, the music is being used to enhance whatever the the person's needs are. That's so that's so vague. <laughs> you hit the nail on the head because our scope of it practice is so, like it's like super individualized, right? Yeah. Yeah. But that's that's why I love this question because I every person I have on the show and ninety nine percent of them are music therapists. Everyone has a different answer and they approach it in yeah. a different way. So um, that was really helpful for anyone listening who, <laughs> you know, you have music therapists come to your school, right? So so if you listener are a music therapist and you're working with a music educator and you know they're open to having this discussion, ask them what do you think I do and you know learn from each other. If, if you guys can hang out, hang out. My, um, our music therapist came in later this year and um, 
the reason that he finally came to my class versus us just meeting was looking for adaptations for playing instruments for a particular student. There are a couple of adaptive options, mm -hmm. and I just wasn't sure based on the student's um, muscle tone and dexterity which one was best. So he came in and was kind of like, I've heard this about you. And I was like, I've heard this about you. And he came and he sat and he watched. And um, we just kind of, it, it gave such a well-rounded idea of how the child was being served hmm. that um, I'm like, oh, you know, everybody needs a music therapist. They're, they're great. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. When, and also, I mean, to also say, like, sometimes I will, I have heard instances where administrators or somebody else, not necessarily in the education uh, teachers or anything, will ask music teachers to do things that are not what music teachers should be. Mm. That's a music therapy thing. And I am not in any by means like qualified to make those decisions or to pre prescribe anything. So it's like, it's very important that that we understand the difference and, and we give our music therapists their due. Well, yeah, and it can, it, you know, even from the, the yeah. aspect of like not doing harm, trying mm -hmm. to step into a lane that, you know, as Laura right. said, we're not qualified for, you know, could be really detrimental to the student. And it could be something as simple as like ways, ways you're speaking to a student in a musical context. It could be something as practical as like, you know, when the child is doing this particular thing based on something about the way they hear that isn't written very well in their in their behavior plans, and it's not behavior plans, it's the wrong term, but it is, isn't written very well in their paperwork, you're not getting a good enough understanding of, and maybe the their teacher can't communicate it well enough because they have no idea what they're doing musically. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it takes that person, you know, saying like, this is is something that, that happens for, for the child. You could have a child who really struggles with certain sounds, but maybe the way they express their struggle isn't as overt so you don't know that it's a problem for them mm -hmm. but your music therapist does know that that's what that means mm -hmm. so stuff like that well and also important for educators to know like you you don't have to take on that burden that you don't feel trained for um, you know there's resources and advocate for yourself to get those resources right because you're you're trained very specifically and I would not go into a classroom of band students and try and teach them how to play their instruments and pretend I can conduct well. Uh, I took a conducting course, but that doesn't mean I'm good at it. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. Right. Awesome. All right. Something that is currently adding value to your life. Beyonce's Black is King. <laughs> <laughs> it's not Hamilton. I thought it was Hamilton. Beyonce replaced Wait, Hamilton. That was, that was last week. It'll cycle back around. Beyonce's okay. Black is King is adding all the value right now. And Aww. and the Afro pop I was listening to already that is just tied into, but all the all the visuals, all the sounds, for me and for my for my children, I have three three grade school age kids. That's that's what this weekend is about right now. Cool. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, mine is um, napping. I, like I'm a big fan of napping. That just happens now, like whether I want it or not, like around this, it's about time. It's about time for me to go down for a nap. So napping and then uh, the Babysitter's Club show on Netflix is yes. just the best thing ever right now. I've watched it like three times this summer. So Awesome. It's will... pretty wonderful. Yeah. yeah. I'll have both of those linked so that the listeners can check out all your <laughs> awesome resources, but also check out, uh, you know, what's making your life feel, have more value in it right now. It's all important, right? We got to balance. Yeah. 
All right. I usually ask the guest their favorite intervention or song to use in a session. So to flip it for you two, I'll say, you know, your favorite um, modality to teach or your favorite instrument to teach. I guess your favorite thing to bring into the music classroom and teach your students. Um, I, I play the banjo is one of, one of the instruments I play and I love to play that for the kids. Um, my, my journey with the instrument has been one of a lot of affirmation of identity, just learning the history in regards to, um, enslaved African people creating it in the Americas and what that means for me and just, um, how, how much of my own culture it's introduced me to. So mm -hmm. I love bringing it to the kids and um, talking about the history of it and knowing that like I'm sitting as a black woman playing for them and able to show them all these all these cool things about it. And then of course, because it's not, it's an instrument people see, but don't often see played up close mm -hmm. very often. It's really, really fun. The kids dig it. Yeah, um, well, the mode I like the most is Phrygian, but- uh, <laughs> Love that, very music educator. Some of the music therapists know, and some of them are like, what is she talking about? <laughs> just start on D, and just play on D. Um, so, no, wait, that's Dorian, Never mind. Um, so, um, oh, the instrument I like playing the most is uh, the ukulele that has been like the my, the instrument that I've just kind of latched on to. It's, it's actually really funny. I've tried to play the guitar like four times in my life, you know, when I was 12, when I was in college. And then, you know, later on in, in um, when I was actually teaching because I didn't, I was tired of being stuck behind the piano. I wanted mm. to be out with the kids um, and uh, I couldn't get past the F chord. I just could not play the F chord. So just as a joke, I, I picked up the ukulele because I was like, eh, it's four strings. It's got to be easier, right? But uh, I just fell in love with it. So it's become the the instrument that I, I, I love to bring into the classroom. Awesome. And you've definitely influenced me. Like that's where I first met Lorelai. Well, <laughs> no, did a panel, but she also did an mm -hmm. ukulele session. And mm -hmm. I was like, she's so cool. And she's adorable. <laughs> this is really awesome. And I think, I, I don't know if I had really tried to play it before then in my classroom. Mm -hmm. But after mm -hmm. that, I brought it into my classroom and she's like, helped me decide on when I wanted to upgrade it. And <laughs> I'm like, well, I wouldn't consider myself playing that instrument for the sake of performance, probably uh -huh. if I hadn't met you. <laughs> I feel like you're, you're wanting to upgrade is not necessarily me helping you. Like, it's just affirmation to go ahead and do it because I you just want to buy like it. <laughs> my purchases and I have an amount of quarantine instrument purchases. Like, do it, I've, do I've been it. very privileged in the level of instrumental upgrading I've been able to do during this time. <laughs> yep. I'm for it. It's awesome. <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, the last question is, how can the listeners find you and connect with you and support what you're doing? Oh, yeah. Our um, our website is www.bepowedknivesinthemusicroom.com. You can help support us by going to our donate page where you can donate one time or monthly. We have Patreon. We have PayPal. And you can find us on Facebook. Our public page is Knives in the Music Room, or you can join us in our discussion group under the same name and we are on instagram at decolonizing the music room as well awesome thank you thank you awesome. again so much for uh yeah. for what you're doing for talking to me for talking to music therapists at large uh i've seen in some of the music therapy 
groups your website be thrown around a few times and I've been like oh I'm gonna talk to them so soon I'm so excited but like... <laughs> oh, <how cool. laughs> so so they're like we're down we're down to to learn um and yeah to have a conversation and to meld so so thank you thank yeah. you so much uh you thank you and we're excited to learn more about music therapy and and understand more about the discipline so yeah mm-hmm. awesome thank you awesome have a wonderful rest of your sunday Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Music Therapy Chronicles. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Brandy and Lorelai were so easy to talk to so friendly and like I said it's just nice to talk to some music educators honestly um I think it's time to have some other professions on the show as much as I call this obviously the music therapy chronicles and I love talking to other music therapists uh it's refreshing it's refreshing to have a different conversation with a different perspective so if you're into that let me know um you can do so by using the anonymous survey at the show under the show notes that's always there Uh, You can also share any other feedback you have for the show or the episodes specifically or generally. Um, You can write it in our group on Facebook or send me a DM on Instagram. Or if you or someone you know wants to be on the show, you can send an email to feedback at musictherapychronicles.com. Thank you again so much for listening to this week's episode. And our quote is part of the Black Lives Matter statement from Decolonizing the Music Room. There is no end point of being decolonized, only constant learning, reflecting, and growing. Mm-hmm.